Today, we're telling the story of William and Catherine. God used two people as soldiers in his army. They faced a literal army of Satan, but refused to give up. This is the story of the Salvation Army. Welcome back to the Church History Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Lee Siemens. I hope you're having a great fall. I'm excited about some upcoming projects, and next week I'm going to tell you all about them, so stay tuned. Today, we're telling the story of William and Catherine Booth, and the start of the Salvation Army. April 10th, 1829, William Booth was born in Nottingham, England, to Samuel and Mary Booth. Born into what would be considered today a middle-class family, William's early childhood was filled with happiness. Five children were in the family, all cared for and loved. His father, Samuel Booth, had a goal to be part of the upper class. To do that, Samuel put their money into the booming construction business. But the family lost everything when William was just 13 years old. William's father was crushed by the sudden and humiliating effect on his family and forced to leave their home and move to the poor area of town. In just five months, his health declined and he died, leaving Mary Booth with five children alone and no money to support the family. In England during the 1840s, widows and their children faced significant hardships. The social and economic conditions of the time placed widows in a vulnerable position. The legal rights and protections for women were limited. And a lack of economic independence made it challenging for widows to provide for their children's basic needs, such as food, clothing, and shelter. So because of that, widows often struggled to find stable employment and support their families. The combination of legal and economic constraints created a horrible situation for widows and their children, making them susceptible to poverty and social marginalization during this period. So in 1844, at 15, Booth had to become a pawnbroker's apprenticeship. His job was depressing. His shop was set up near the poor area of town. And every day... He would see children come in and sell their positions to pay for basic needs, such as food and clothing for their children. He also had men who would spend every penny on alcohol and then come to the pawn shop to sell their possessions to pay their bills, only to spend that money on alcohol as well. Alcohol abuse had a devastating impact on people with low income in England during the 1800s. At that time, alcohol, particularly gin, was readily available and affordable, and that made it a temporary escape from the harsh realities of poverty and the overcrowded urban living conditions. But all the alcohol consumption often made the problems worse for the low-income families. It led to a cycle of addiction, unemployment, and then deteriorating health. Many families living in these areas struggled to afford necessities because of the money that was spent on alcohol. That led to malnutrition, poor living conditions, 
diseases, and it continued the cycle of poverty. Alcohol abuse also led to domestic violence and neglect, causing real harm to families. The widespread abuse of alcohol among the poor in the 1800s in England made their already dire circumstances much more challenging and made it almost impossible to escape poverty. William Booth watched all this unfold right in front of him. As a 15-year-old, he received a first-hand education on the life of the poor community and the abuse of alcohol. In 1849, Booth was invited to hear a preacher who was part of a traveling revival service. A neighbor invited him to hear an American preacher. He went to all the meetings for six weeks and was profoundly impacted. He decided he wanted to be a preacher. In the evening, when he was not working, young Booth would go out into the fields and preach to the trees, trying to master the art of preaching. But he could not match the power of the evangelist. He started attending a Methodist church, and even that pastor could preach better than he could. One day, as he stood in the field preaching, he asked God why he could not preach how the other preachers could. And that's when the thought struck him. Those men were talking about something they believed in completely, and he, on the other hand, had never truly believed. This is when he began to look at the teachings more seriously. He continued to attend church for two years before he made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And after that, he joined the Methodist Church. Today's episode is brought to you by Alexander Henry Coffee. If you use the code CHURCHHISTORY, all lowercase and no spaces, you can receive a 20% discount. If you want some great coffee, check it out. My husband roasts the coffee and let me tell you, our home smells amazing. I'm drinking his coffee right now as I record this. And the taste is so smooth. So check out the link in the show notes. Catherine Mumford was born on January 17, 1829 in Ashbourne, England. Her father built carriages, and he was also a Methodist lay preacher. Her mother was a Puritan. Catherine was often sick and spent much of her childhood in bed, and her mother and father educated her at home. When Catherine was nine years old, she was walking in the street when she heard a loud crowd laughing and mocking someone. She pushed her way through the crowd and saw a drunk man being taken to prison. The crowd was laughing at him and throwing things at him. Catherine was moved to compassion. She pushed through the crowd and ran to the man. She walked beside him the whole way to the prison, talking kindly to him. She told her parents afterwards she didn't want to see him walk alone. This moment was imprinted on her life and was the beginning of God's call in her life to see the humanity in the alcoholic and wanting to help them. In 1844, she moved with her family to London. Meanwhile, William Booth had a life-changing experience. As the sun dipped below the horizon, casting long shadows over the cobblestone streaks in the early 19th century England, William found himself walking through the hearts of the slum. He had finished working at the pawn shop, and he found himself walking the narrow alleyways that seemed to stretch on endlessly, each turn revealing scenes of 
squalor and despair that he had long ignored. The stench of poverty hung heavy in the air. The buildings seemed to press in on him like bricks that held tales of suffering. For the first time, William saw the people as humans, not merely as wretched souls to be ignored. They huddled in makeshift shelters. Their faces were etched with lines of hardship. Their eyes reflect a mix of resignation and hopelessness. Children's cheeks were smudged with dirt, playing in the chaos, their laughter contrasting their surroundings. And then, in a doorway, he saw a five-year-old boy, drunk and hungover. As he continued his journey through the slums, William's heart ached with a newfound understanding. These were not faceless, nameless souls to be discarded like garbage. They were human beings, worthy of dignity, compassion, and needed help. That evening, with a heavy heart, William determined to make a difference. William found a crate and turned it over, and then he climbed on top. He stood there in the street and began to preach. Instead of preaching in the fields, he was preaching in the streets. Some women walked over, carrying some chairs, set them up and sat down and listened. Some men began to laugh, and others yelled, and someone threw something at him. This was his first sermon, and he knew at that moment who God had called him to reach. But it would take a while for him to understand what that calling meant. It was during this time that William and Catherine met and fell in love. They both loved and worshipped God, and they both felt God called them to reach the people the church had forgotten about. As William began to lead people to Christ, he found a problem. As he invited his new converts to the church, the church didn't want them. They smelled, they left the pew dirty, and they made people uncomfortable. William and Catherine tried to work in the church to make a difference. In 1852, William and Catherine were married, and three years later, in 1855, Booth quit his job as a pawnbroker and began working as a Methodist preacher. For nine years, he tried to work in the Methodist church to make the church open and welcoming to the lower class. Catherine began to visit the homes of the alcoholics, trying to help the wives and convince the husbands to stop drinking. William started holding classes for new believers, and he also pushed for people to stop drinking. As their families stopped drinking, the husbands were motivated to work, and they brought home their money from work. The members of his church became upset with the work William and Catherine were doing. They wanted him to stop this work with the people living in the slums and focus more on the people in the church. Imagine with me you're in a church meeting. Your pastor, William Booth, is standing at the front of the church. The tensions are high. A man stands and puts forward a motion for the church to vote on. Pastor Booth will end the work in the slums, treating the alcoholics, and he will instead focus only on the congregation. Suddenly, you hear a voice from the balcony yell, Never! You turn to see Catherine Booth, your pastor's wife, standing. Men in the church are suddenly rushing to her and taking her by her arms. People are 
gasping in disbelief. You look back at your pastor for his reaction. He's holding his top hat in the air, pointing towards his wife, and he looks proud of her. Suddenly, he's walking through the church and out the door. You're sitting near a window, and you get up and quickly go look out the window. You watch as your pastor and his wife walk arm in arm down the church steps and out the door. And then you turn and look at the empty pulpit. That is the true story of how William Booth resigned as the pastor of his church. In 1861, William had three young children to feed. He didn't want to make the same mistakes his father had made, leaving his family in dire need. But he knew that God had called him to be the preacher of the people on the streets. And so that is what he did. He then became a full-time evangelist and soon after was appointed as a traveling minister in the Methodist Reformed Church. Four years later, the mission had grown. They had many volunteers helping them. Families had been changed. Alcoholics were trying to find peace with God and abandoned their drinking. But there was no church building for them to use. So in 1865, Booth and Catherine started the East London Christian Mission. Its mission was to bring salvation to the poor and the oppressed. For the next 13 years, the family worked together. Whenever William would speak, crowds would gather. William was bold in his preaching, and he asked his wife Catherine to speak with him, but she was still too shy. One night, William was preaching to a crowd of over a thousand people. Catherine felt convicted that she should not be ashamed to speak. When the altar call was made, Catherine came forward. She publicly confessed her sin of being afraid to speak publicly about the work of Jesus. She later wrote these words about that night. I felt I could sooner die rather than to speak publicly. And then the devil said, Besides, you're not prepared to speak. You will look foolish and have nothing to say. He made a mistake. He overdid himself for once. It was that word that settled it. I said, and this is the point, I've never yet been willing to be a fool for Christ. Now I will be one. I got up, God only knows how, and if any mortal ever did hang on the arm of omnipotence, I did. I felt as if I were clinging to some human arm, yet it was a divine arm to hold me. After that night, William and Catherine would both speak. William would deliver a very emotional sermon, while Catherine would conclude with a thought-out, informational speech that sounded more like a lawyer or a politician than a preacher. At one point, she said, Will you be encouraged, my sister? Never mind trembling. I tremble. Never mind your heart beating. Mine beat nearly through. Never mind how weak you are. It's not by human power, wisdom, might or strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He loves to use the weak things that the excellency of God may be seen. If your neighbors were sick of some devastating plague and you could go and help them, would you not do it? Would you say, I'm a woman, I cannot go? You would say, let me go. And these are not the bodies, but the souls. They are dying they are going to an eternal death. Will you not rise? 
so many people were coming to Christ that the local pubs and breweries were angry. They were losing so many customers that some were closing down. These pubs and these breweries had to find a way to stop William before the alcohol business went completely under. In 1878, William had begun to speak of his volunteers in terms of war. They were at war against Satan and all the temptations he gave to the lower class to hold them down. Jesus was the only answer to their problems. He was writing a letter, and his son was dictating the letter. In the letter, he called those working with him a volunteer army. His son objected, I'm not a volunteer. I am a full soldier of Christ. So he changed the wording in the letter from volunteer army to the salvation army. And the name stuck. From then on, he referred to his volunteers as soldiers. And he was not a pastor. He was a general. And they were fighting in God's army. In 1880, the Salvation Army expanded its operations to the United States with the first official Salvation Army meeting in Philadelphia. And once again, the impact was clear. People were turning away from alcohol. Men were coming to Christ and immediately after putting the needs of their family above all else. And now the pubs and breweries of America and England were both angry. The alcohol industry started a propaganda campaign. They made it appear as if William Booth and the Salvation Army were political and in an army that was not connected to the throne in England or the government in the United States. Columns were printed in newspapers, making it seem like William was holding political rallies instead of church services. They wrote stories that portrayed William and the Salvation Army as traitors and unloyal to their country. Completely made-up stories were printed in the newspapers, making William seem corrupt and immoral. People found donors who had committed crimes and said the Salvation Army was funded by blood money. William was mocked as a crazy man, and his team as backwards and nuts. William's son was angry. He wanted William to fight back. But every time a story was printed, William would only laugh. He said, they're printing the time and place where I'll be speaking. It's free advertisement in the largest newspapers in the country. And that turned out to be true. The crowds only grew. So the pubs and breweries began paying people to go to the speeches to start fights and cause problems, to be loud and to make it impossible for anyone to hear what was happening. At first, this tactic proved to be a good one. The paid protesters were loud and disruptive. William needed to find a way to solve that problem. He came up with a great solution. Everyone loved marching bands. William hired a marching band that would stand on the platform with him. When the paid protesters would start to yell and cause problems, he would step back and look at the marching band, who would start to play music and the crowd would sing along. They would do this until the paid protesters were just too tired to continue, and then he would finish preaching. And thus, the Salvation Army Band was established. In 1885, Booth published in Darkest England and the Way Out. This was a book outlining his vision to help the poor and the marginalized in society. People were catching the vision, and his army was growing. The breweries then upped their game. The Skeleton Army was created to fight the Salvation Army. 
The police were ordered to stand by without assistance as the skeleton army would attack the crowd. They threw rocks and fruit at them. They yelled at them. This happened at the rallies where William was preaching, but it also happened anywhere the Salvation Army was working to help people. It also happened at rallies where Salvation Army men and women were speaking. When the police came, they would arrest the speakers and the Salvation Army person being attacked instead of arresting the Skeleton Army. The police would say the Salvation Army was at fault because they were the ones speaking. And it never would have happened if the Salvation Army hadn't been there in the first place. The court would always find the Salvation Army person guilty, and they were offered either a fine or 10 days in prison. And they always picked the 10 days in prison. After 10 days, the Salvation Army band would play and march all the way to the prison. Then, march to a location they had picked for a rally. They would march the person arrested right onto the stage where they would speak again. The skeleton army started to become more aggressive. They began to attack the Salvation Army soldiers in their homes. They threw dead animals through the windows. They burned down Salvation Army centers. And the police always blamed the Salvation Army. They had made the people angry and upset. The violence would stop if they stopped, so it was their fault. One day, a woman was meeting with people on the streets, witnessing when the skeleton army approached. They began throwing rocks, fruits, and vegetables at her. She was hit in the head with a rock and fell to the ground. One of the skeleton army ran to her, but he kicked her in the stomach instead of checking on her. She lay in the street, bleeding. She was taken to the hospital, and from the beating she received and the rock thrown at her face, she had lost an eye. Her injuries from the kick in the stomach were much more severe, and she died from internal bleeding. Her name was Susanna Beatty. The year was 1889. It was clear the war was real. The pubs wanted their drinkers back. They didn't back down after the death of Susanna. In fact, it seemed to light a fire under them, and they escalated more. They would fill chamber pots with human waste and then throw the buckets at the people who were witnessing in the streets. They would light dead animals on fire and throw them into the crowds of people coming to hear them speak. They threw rocks, sticks, and even hot coals, and they didn't care if they hit men, women, or children. Susanna was the first person killed, but not the last. The skeleton army injured thousands of people, including men, women, and children, and others were killed. Then one day, when the skeleton army attacked the crowd at a service, a police officer was accidentally hit with a rock. When the other police officers tried to help him, the skeleton army began to attack all of the police officers. Finally, the police stopped standing down and protected the crowd, and the skeleton army was arrested and imprisoned. Once the police started arresting the protesters, they went away. One day, William saw men sleeping under a bridge. When he spoke to his son about this, he was told, Of course men sleep under the bridge. They always have. Didn't you know that? William was shocked. Why had no one done anything about this? So he told his son to use funds from the mission to purchase an old abandoned warehouse. Then they were to set up beds, mattresses, and invite the men sleeping under the bridge to sleep there instead. But they were not to treat these men like babies. 
The men needed to stop drinking and receive help and find jobs. Their stay in the warehouse was to be limited. The point was not to live in the warehouse, but to have an opportunity to receive the help needed to move out of their situation. And thus, the Salvation Army homeless shelters were created. As the movement had grown into a church denomination, some began to ask if the army should be taking communion or baptizing the converted. William didn't want to spend time arguing or fighting with other denominations about how to take communion or who could take communion. He didn't want to argue about the different forms of baptism. William only wanted to focus on evangelism and helping the poor. He thought communion and baptism were arguments that could take the focus away from the work. He told those in his army who wanted to take communion or be baptized that they were free to do that in any church and continue to be part of the Salvation Army. And to this day, the Salvation Army holds the same principle. They do not hold communions or baptisms. However, church members are free to take communion or be baptized in another church while continuing to serve in the Salvation Army. In 1890, Catherine Booth, William's wife, passed away. She was considered the mother of the Salvation Army. She was only 61 years old when she died. One year after the passing of Catherine Booth, in 1891, the Salvation Army of the Oakland Ferry Landing in San Francisco Bay came up with an idea that would eventually become a staple at Christmas time. A man wanted to host a Christmas dinner, and he needed money to buy the food for the dinner. So he took a red bucket, hung it up, and asked for donations for the Christmas dinner. It was a huge success, and the next Christmas, other Salvation Armies copied the idea, and soon it spread, making the Christmas red kettle part of our Christmas traditions. In 1896, the tides had shifted, and the once despised group had become known for being a beacon of good in England. William Booth was awarded the Freedom of the City of London. Women were always a huge part of the organization. Not only did Catherine speak on the platform with William, but at least 50% of the Salvation Army was made up of women. Many were women who had seen the positive effects on the family. Their fathers, brothers, and husbands had put away alcohol and become a positive part of society. In 1904, the Salvation Army introduced the Hallelujah Lassies, which was a group of women officers who work in the social services and outreach. In 1907, William Booth officially retired from his leadership position, but he remained active. In 1912, William Booth's health deteriorated, and he became bedridden. Then, on August 20th, 1912, William Booth, the founder and the first general of the Salvation Army, passed away in Hadleywood, Hertfordshire, England, at the age of 83. There was a rumor that the queen had disguised herself as a commoner and come to the funeral. However, this was never proven. We see that the rumor was believed then, and the historians today believe it was possible, even though it can't be proven. And that itself shows us how very well-respected William was by the end of his life. Today, the Salvation Army continues its work in over 130 countries, They provide social services, disaster relief, and spiritual guidance to those in need. Last week, we talked about the Sunday School Movement, and this week, the Salvation Army Movement. And next week, we're going to talk about a child who grew up in this environment 
and his impact on America. We're also going to talk about another social impact the church had on the world with the development of the YMCA. Until next Thursday, have a great week. I'll see you next week. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. <laughs>